0: Open God's holy word to the 22nd Psalm, the 22nd Psalm. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people, yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant great grace that we may sense something of the suffering of our Lord, the Christ, our King, and that we might, being led by the Spirit of Christ, Respond with shouts of praise and thanks unto You, Father, for giving us so much and giving Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the 21st Psalm, we saw the King rejoicing in His salvation. A salvation that came in answer to His prayers for deliverance from the enemies of God. In the 22nd Psalm, we step back in time as it were. We we step away from the joy of His salvation and into the agony from which the prayers arose for deliverance. Now in David, these two psalms might have been written about two different occasions, two different attacks, two different enemies, two different instances of prayer and salvation. But in our Lord, the Son of David, the Christ, they are one and the same. This is a most solemn psalm. I don't think it's surpassed In that aspect. Spurgeon comments, This is above all others the psalm of the cross. No doubt we should come to all of Scripture with the highest reverence. But do we not sense that especially here, it's as though we should take off our shoes because we are on holy ground Upon hearing some song so sublime in their their sorrow, if one doesn't shed a tear at them, you might wonder, are they human? One is tempted to say that upon reflecting on this song, if it doesn't cause one to weep, you wonder, are they Christ's? Ah, uh, just because your eyes are wet does not mean that your soul is be washed. Tears are no fruit, certain fruit of regeneration, but saints, no doubt you understand what I mean that the psalm shakes our soul, and yet our tears of sorrow are turned to. Tears of joy as this cry of dereliction gives way to a swelling chorus of praise. This song takes us as high as it begins low. And it cannot begin any lower. The words of the first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are known in reference to our Lord and his suffering on the cross as the cry of dereliction. Dereliction is not a word we use much anymore. At best, we might refer to some abandoned home as derelict, it's an uncommon word. Some make a lot of fuss over such uncommon words in preaching and teaching in the church, uh, saying we need to update our language. I think that's kind of like the football fanatic who wants to learn something of golf, complaining to his golf buddy that all he uses is golf terms. Certainly we need to clarify, we need to define, we need to unpack this theological jargon. But I don't think this uncommon word is a problem here because this is a holy moment. This moment is set apart from others. If anything, we need an uncommon word to capture something of the meaning of what's happening here. A common word would fail to describe what is on the lips of our Lord. Dereliction is the state of being abandoned. The Latin word is even more potent, being made up of two roots that come together basically to communicate completely abandoned. David, the author of this psalm, and we at times can feel Abandoned. God may seem distant. Sometimes it feels as though we are praying to a brazen sky. Our prayers cannot break through. His answers will not come down. This is what many have called the dark night of the soul. We know He's there, but it's as though He's hidden. And David's experience no doubt surpassed ours. There were times to look at David's life and it appeared as though he were genuinely forsaken. It appeared that way. And David had a far keener grasp on what forsakenness meant. It goes beyond being abandoned, alone. It meant more than being orphaned by Yahweh, it meant being cursed by the Almighty. What it meant to be in covenant with God in a state of blessed relation to Him was captured by the Aaronic blessing in number 6. The priests were instructed to bless the people of God in this way. May Yahweh bless you And keep you. May Yahweh make His face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you. And give you peace. Opposite of this divine benediction. R.C. Sproul captures what would be the divine malediction. When he says. May the Lord curse you. And abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness. And give you only judgment. Without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you. And remove his peace from you. Forever. Did you hear the forsakenness? The abandonment? His back turned. Turned left to darkness, abandoned. And what David and we might only feel or sense, it is not reality, what we might only feel or sense was our Lord's experience on the cross. God has promised His own that He will never leave them Or forsake them. Christ went to the cross. Knowing that forsakenness was promised to him. This is why he trembled at the cup. That he was to drink. This is a prayer. That no saint. Will ever pray. In the truest sense. Because to pray it they would have to be in hell. Hell hung on the cross. This is the cry of the forsaken, the cursed, and the abandoned, damned Son of God as He hangs on the cross. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus cried out these words with a loud voice. Jesus wasn't so much quoting the poetry of the past as this poetry of the past was quoting the yet unspoken words of our Lord. It isn't that Jesus took David's words into His mouth so much as David took Christ into His as the Spirit moved him in anticipating the true and better David. And hearing this cry, the next words startle us. Verse 3, yet. These words shouldn't shock us so much if we're paying close attention though to the cry, because the cry itself expresses faith. My God, my God. Study the words of Christ and you will see he always referred to His Father as the Father or my Father. Only one time do we sing saying otherwise and it's in this instance when he is forsaken and abandoned and cursed. And yet he cries out, my God. Even in this moment, he speaks with reverence and faith. A faith that comes to greater expression in verse 3, yet you are holy. In the first four stanzas of this psalm, we alternate back and forth between these cries of dereliction and these statements of faith. These, these cries that you see this me and I language, why have you forsaken me? And then this turn to this you language where he's expressing his faith and confidence in his Lord, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Israel. Don't misunderstand, God didn't need the praises of Israel for his throne to be established. God's kingdom is not as fragile as the fairies of Neverland. Our unbelief does not decimate it in any way, and our faith does not make it more solid or certain. I think what is meant by this phrase, he's enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Remember how Hebrew poetry works with parallelism and there being a link between one phrase and the one that follows it so often. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I think what he's saying is God is who Israel ascribes. He is what we ascribe to him. He is who we say he is. He's holy, there's none like him. The praises that His people sing of Him, those expressions of who He is, He sits on those. He rules on top of those. And that said, in being enthroned on the praises of Israel, He speaks of God's covenant faithfulness to the fathers. Verse 4, And you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. They trusted in God, God delivered. They cried out to God, God heard their cries and saved them. This most focusedly refers to the Exodus. The people of God crying out for deliverance. God hearing their cries and bringing them out by the blood of the Lamb. But it also captures so many events that unfold in their wandering in the wilderness when God delivers them again and again throughout the time of the judges and even David himself is an answer to their cries for deliverance. They trusted God and ultimately, verse 5, they were not put to shame because God rescued them. Whenever it seems that God is absent in your life, recall who He is. He's holy. When he seems absent, recall what he has done. He saves. In those moments, recall both his attributes and his acts. Strive to emulate this kind of faith that recalls and is strengthened by the truth of God. Strive to emulate this, but don't fail to marvel at this faith. How often, in the midst of some trivial trial, do we basically cry out like this, Where are you, God? We are not abandoned. We're not forsaken. And we cry out like this. And our faith so fragile and weak. Here, our Lord was forsaken. And yet, He trusts His Father. Because He trusted the Father when He was forsaken, saints when it feels as though you are, recall this to mind. Because He was forsaken, you never will be. When you feel forsaken, recall the Christ who faltered not in His faith. And be certain He will keep you in the faith. But, verse 6, though God's people were not put to shame, the king is humiliated. They were not put to shame. He is. He is a worm and not a man. He's subhuman. He's so subhuman, he's regarded as A worm. He's scorned. He's despised. He's mocked. Isaiah 53 tells us, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. For he was despised. And we esteemed him not. At his trial, he was spit on. Struck, slapped, ridiculed, mocked. The crowds chose a murderer over him, yelling for him to be crucified. The soldiers took him, stripped him of his clothing, put a scarlet robe on him, a crown of thorns on His head, a reed in His hand, and mocked Him saying, Hell, the King of the Jews! And then, pierced, crucified on the cross, they continued to heap scorn on Him. And what must have especially stung in all of this was the nature of their accusations. For there He hung... Forsaken and abandoned. They said he trusts God for nothing. There he is. On a cross. On the tree. Cursed. Forsaken of God. Suspended between heaven and earth. He is forsaken, abandoned by both. In Matthew's gospel we read, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him for he said, I am the Son of God. The king trusts. Does Yahweh desire him? Does he, verse 8, delight in him? And what blessed irony that never did the Christ more please the Father than when He was being crushed for our sins. Never was there a greater act of obedience to please the Father than when He was bearing God's displeasure for our sins. But in this moment, the Son senses Experientially, none of that, only forsakenness and abandonment. And though he's forsaken, though he's mocked, yet again he expresses trust in God. Verse 9, yet you are He who took me from the womb. This time, instead of recalling God's covenant faithfulness to the fathers, he remembers his providential care of Him. From his beginnings. The king lived in trust and dependence from the beginning. Now though David was set apart from the womb. With Yahweh as his God. These words have added depth. Concerning the son of God. In his incarnation. He was a perfect child just as much as he was a perfect Man expressing trust, dependence, reliance on his Father for the whole of his life. How unfathomable that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who as He has aseity, as He has of Himselfness, self-existence, as He possesses life, being God in His incarnation becoming man, lived in perfect dependence on His Father. And being cast upon Him, now forsaken and abandoned, yet He pleads, be not far from Me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. He looks nowhere else but to His Father. Even in this moment, Spurgeon writes, his great woe was that God had forsaken him. His great prayer is that he would be near him. We've seen the king mocked by his enemies, but now we see the enemies surround him, encircle him, animal-like in their fury against him. Verses 12-18. through 18. They're like bulls, verse 12. They're like a lion, verse 13. Like dogs and a company of evildoers, verse 16. And the effect of all this is that the king's poured out. He's emptied. He's dry as a potsherd. He's going the way of dust. All his bones are out of joint. His heart is melted within him. And they pierce his hands and feet, verse 16. You may know that there is some difficulties with the text at this point. Some argue that pierced is not the best translation. We'll see because of the way that the, there's a parallel phrase that's going to unfold later that these evildoers, these men, come at him with a sword. I think that's the strongest argument that pierced is the right idea here. In Zechariah 12.10, Yahweh says that His people will behold Him whom they have pierced. How is it that the people of God will look upon God as pierced, as them doing it? It cannot be but in the incarnation of Jesus. Isaiah 53.5 tells us that the servant of Yahweh was pierced for our transgressions. His suffering was to such an extent, verse 17, that he can count all his bones. Again, what was a poetic expression for David is a prophetic experience. It's, it's the lot in reality of the son of David can count all his bones. The Christ was so thin, so emaciated, so worn by his beating. He can count his bones. Isaiah 52 unfolds something of the horror of this for us. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. Alec Matir comments, the servant's suffering... Sufferings brought such a disfigurement that those who saw said, Not only is this he, but is this human? And as he hangs there, mocked, they divide his garments, verse 18. They cast lots for his clothing. For the sake of decency and out of reverence, so much Christian art displays the crucified Lord in a loincloth. But the cross was no decent thing. I believe that per normal custom, Christ was crucified naked and ashamed. That's the significance of this as we go along. The point of the cross was to ridicule all who would defy Rome. And there he is, shame upon shame heaped upon our Lord. And do you see that even so, in all of this, what most pangs the king's heart is not what men do to him, but the significance of all of that underneath is that He's been forsaken and abandoned by the one He trusts and loves above all others. J.I. Packer writes of what was our Lord's greatest suffering. On the cross, God judged our sins in the person of His Son, and Jesus endured the retributive comeback of our wrongdoing. Look at the cross, therefore, and you will see what form God's judicial reaction to human sin will finally take. What form is that? In a word, withdrawal and deprivation of good. On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before all sense of the Father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well being. "...all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from Him, and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness." The physical pain, though great, for crucifixion remains the cruelest form of judicial execution that the world has ever known, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual, and what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself, as mental sufferers know that individual minutes can be. In God's providence, it was arranged that a spectacle so awful as crucifixion would be used that it might make manifest something of the anguish of soul that the Christ endured as the wrath quencher on behalf of of sinners. And in the midst of such shame and pain, verse 19, he pleads still, but you, O Yahweh, be, do not be far off. In reverse order now, the enemies of God are brought forward. Above the order was bulls, lion, dogs, then man, Now we begin with man, then dogs, then the lion, and finally the ox. Verses 20-21. through Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. But did you catch the change that happens in this plea? Crammed in between... The exclamation point following lion, and you have rescued me, crammed in between there is the resurrection. You have rescued me. And this plea turned suddenly to praise. I will tell of your name to the brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You remember in the shadow of the cross, Jesus prayed, John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify You. This is an embryo in David what was birthed in glory in Christ. The glorified Son glorifying the Father. And He does so in the midst of the congregation of the people of God. He does so for His Brothers, Hebrews 2 makes clear that those who are in Christ are His brothers, and it says, He's not ashamed to call them brothers. He bore our shame, and He's not ashamed of us, calling us brothers. And the king not only praises God in the midst of the church, He commands praise, verse 23. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. Jesus is the great psalmist, leading the congregation of God in worship. And we are to praise Him because He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when he cried to him. Of course, foremost, we're thinking of the Christ. Our our joy, our rejoicing is because he hasn't forsaken Christ. doesn't matter of us. If Christ is dead in the grave, we have no hope. But because he's been resurrected, we sing and we rejoice. But because this is true of our king, it's true of us as well. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. Do you notice how this choir swells as we go along? It begins with the offspring of Jacob and of Israel, verse 23. And then verse 27, all the ends of the earth, the families of the nations. Michael Wilcock writes, For Israel by grace, more than Israel by race, was going to spread to all the ends of the earth and to draw its adopted children from all the families of the nations. Verses 21 through 31 transcend all boundaries. Indeed, they transcend not only ethnic boundaries, it transcends social, economic, and generational boundaries as well all the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship. Before Him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. Be they prosperous or so destitute, they die. They worship Him. And not only this generation, but those yet to come. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And in hearing what He has done, they shall come and proclaim His righteousness. The glorified Son glorifies the Father as He leads the congregation to praise the Father for what He has done in the King's salvation because His salvation is theirs. This very psalm is... The true and better David leading the people of God in worship. Marveling at what he has done in awe of the king who suffered so for his people and rejoicing in his salvation. What a king. What a God! Oh, what He has done! Perhaps the best way we can end our reflection on this psalm is to return now to that opening stanza of the 21st psalm and lift up our hearts in joy. O oh, Yahweh, in your strength the King rejoices, and in your salvation He greatly exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked of you life. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king, trust in Yahweh, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. That you gave so precious a gift to endure, so horrid a price for our sins. May we sing, may the nation sing. You are worthy for what you have done Christ's name Amen